cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Today, we talked to Eli Sugarman, who's a program officer at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. He manages their cyber initiative. Eli's kind of unique in the field because he has an architectural view of how we should build things, who the players are, who the actors are, what their roles are. How do we build the cybersecurity field and where do academics, civil society, tech companies, where do they all fit in? And it helps that Hewlett is located on Sand Hill Road, the nexus of Silicon Valley. And uh, he's got some interesting insights. This is part one of the podcast we're doing with Eli Sugarman from the Hewlett Foundation. Thanks for doing this. You're sort of at a central point when it comes to cybersecurity, and I often think you're the one who has the best overview of the field. So how has the field changed since you started? Sure. No, thanks, Jim. And and I appreciate the opportunity to join for the podcast. So, you know, I think like most people, I'm relatively new to the field, right? I mean, I I largely joined it five years ago when I started in this role at the foundation. And so it has been an interesting ride to see how it's changed. I, I think that, you know, it's changed in a few ways. You know, first is that there are many, many, many new people who have joined it, right? And, yeah. and a lot of people who are working on cybersecurity policy and in adjacent spaces are new to it. They come from other security domains and have realized that the internet and digital technologies are the backbone of society and the global economy and that all of the really thorny issues that are arising are interesting and hard and complicated and they want to bring their knowledge, even if it's limited, to bear on those issues. And so you have a lot of new people, um, which means that a lot of the old guard or wily veterans or however you want to describe them see that change and sometimes react negatively, sometimes feel that the newbies don't know what they're talking about, which can be true. But but at the end of the day, it's positive that a lot of new people are interested and involved because you bring new viewpoints, new, new disciplines to bear. I think that there's a bit of a gold rush underway, right, to everybody to say they're a cyber expert and they know more and they're either more technical or they know more about the law or they know more about startups and business incentives or like whatever. And so I think that it's still a really, it's like a growth period, but then there hasn't been sort of that shaking out to sort of like then downsize a little bit to like the stable, you know, really core of the field that's going to take it forward. So it's a bit of a transitional period, which is both like exciting and neat, but then there's also a lot of you know, redundant thinking, a lot of duplicative research, and just a lot of hand-waving. And we need to cut through that and help the field mature. Oh, you've been looking at the Solarium Project, have you? (laughs) That was a joke. I mean, listen, like, say what you will about the Solarium Project. Like, I think, you know, it has a lot of promise. Like, whether or not it takes full advantage of the mandate it's been given is, like, yet to be determined, right? I think you've got some really top-notch commissioners. Um, You've got a really robust, dedicated staff. And I think the one thing they deserve a lot of praise for, and I'm, I'm, you know, I I believe Uh this firmly, is, like, they have spoken 
to everybody who I think is credible on a range of issues, and they have done some amazing outreach, which is quite rare for a government commission. And so, yeah, no, um, it's a great the fact team. That they were at, they've yeah. been at DEF CON, they've yeah. been out here in Silicon Valley, no they've been everywhere, and they're really, they're actually listening and actually asking for help and new thinking, again, is really rare for a government effort, and I think that they deserve a lot of praise. But, you know, the political realities being what they are in Congress and in Washington, um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the really big ideas that the staff and even some of the members oh. want to run with will probably mm. be limited by those political realities. Yeah. But, but you know, like I'm, I'm, you know, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and will eagerly await the report as soon as it comes out. Yeah, I, they have a really strong team, and so we'll see what the report says. I mean, the the people I know on the commission are pretty optimistic. Not, I guess they have three working groups, and they're optimistic about two of them. But you know, it's it's a good group, so that's always a, a good start. Do you, you think they're and, and again, yeah, like yeah. their credit, they've really mixed a lot of the, you know, really experienced folks like you with some of the new up and coming academic and other scholars. And I think that creates a really interesting dynamic mix. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it creates, you know, it, it requires a bit of leadership skill and vision to really yeah. craft that team. And so, so, right. I mean, they, they have the right building blocks, I think, and like what the output is, it's hard to judge until we see sure. it. But, you know. Um, cautiously optimistic. Do you think there will be a shakedown? Do you think there will be a retraction, or will the field just continue to grow but maybe yeah. evolve? No, there, there, there has to be at some point. I think the question is in how many years, right? Yeah. Because it, it, it boils down to a question of resources. I mean, just one way to think about it, and as a funder, unfortunately, sometimes I think too much <laughs> about resources, is yeah. um, at some point a lot of investors are going to realize that a lot of the companies that are being invested in they're selling snake mm. oil. And so mm-hmm. even the cybersecurity industry has contracted in certain ways, depending on what metrics you look at, mm-hmm. because a lot of the snake oil investors get savvier about sniffing it out. You know, companies are, are more reticent to acquire a smaller startup because oftentimes they realize that what they're selling is just, you know, it's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, I think on the policy side too, you know, you're going to have a lot of people with more superficial knowledge who at the end of the day are going to be, you know, supplanted and replaced by those who come out of the higher quality programs that give them deeper knowledge where they really have a mix of technical and non-technical skills. And I think that, you know, you're having enough competition creating a pipeline to educate these people. We're still not meeting the aggregate demand, but you're getting more competition and higher quality programs. So I think in some number of years, you are going to see a shaking down because all of those educational programs and all of those think tank programs, like the money isn't there to sustain all of them, unfortunately. And so there's going to be competition, and the competition doesn't always lead to the best staying around and, and, and growing, but, but to some degree it will. And so I do think that competition and, and scarcity of resources will over time you know, lead to a, hopefully a right-sizing of, of the field. But right now, like, the demand and the need is still so huge, like, you actually want that surge to help address the need. So since you brought it up, you've been one of the big investors, investors at least on the research side. What are the things you thought went well in that? Where are the, the things you look back and say, it's been five years, we put a lot of money in, this worked out really well? What would, what would you put in that category? And we, we don't have to do names if you, unless you want, yeah. but you no, can... No, I, I, uh, I, I, I will draw on my diplomatic skills to sort of be as specific as <laughs> yeah. possible without naming names. Um, no, so, so I think... So it's it's a great question, and that's one that like my board always asks me, right? And annually, we we report on where we think we're seeing progress, either because we are helping to drive it, mm-hmm. just supporting the people who do the real work, or just it, it happens to be positive movement because of other forces. And so, I think the easiest thing to point to, which is significant, is to say that 
a lot of universities are actually stepping up mm. and launching new degree programs that focus on the policy, the business, the legal, the non-purely technical dimensions of cybersecurity, whether it's MIT or University of Texas Austin or University of Washington, Stanford, UC Berkeley, NYU, you have a geographically diverse Indiana University, array of universities, all launching programs in response to student demand and faculty demand and because there's demand from employers. And so that's really positive because whereas five years ago, I could count on one hand the number of programs that were sort of cyber and sort of multidisciplinary, mm -hmm. at this point in the United States, like I don't actually know how many there are because there are new ones every day. That doesn't yeah. mean they're all the same quality, but, but there's demand and there's competition. And universities, unlike nonprofits, have alumni, and they have access to government funding and state-specific funding. And so they can actually grow things in a way that a think tank or another nonprofit can't. And so that's really positive. And, and we have played a small part in engendering that by making some big grants to universities that have then led other universities to step up and say, hey, I didn't get that you know, big grant. Maybe I should go to a wealthy donor or a lot of them and say, hey, I need that level of money so I can launch a program so that I don't lose out to my my peer or my rival. And that's really positive. And, and so we have some, you know, internal data on the growth of those programs and the master's degrees and the student enrollment and the new faculty. They still have a long way to go. Um, and they are of uneven quality. But like that academic pipeline to churn out people who get the policy and the you know, technical plus non-technical side of things is like, in five years, there has been really significant progress there. And I think that, that that's, you know, really worthy of note. When, um, when a university comes to you, what, what are you looking for? What do you want to hear them yeah, describe the mix? I mean, it's a great question. So what, what we're looking for is a few things. Um, one is that um, they have a mix of disciplines. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what we don't want, not because it's not important, but just because we have limited funding, we're not funding solely engineering, computer science, or purely technical education, nor are we solely funding just lawyers teaching law students more law classes. We want to see a mix of disciplines. And we want to see that it's been a thoughtful mix so that, you know, you may have a good law school and a good engineering school, but not a great business school or whatever the case may be, that there's a mix of disciplines that fits your, your institution that gives students a broad view of the subject matter. So it's not just, you know, pigeonholing them for only a small number of roles. So, so one is that disciplinary mix that you have a good thought, you have a good reason for why you've mixed it that way, um, that you have buy-in from senior leadership, um, deans or more senior folks, um, because to teach and to sustain interdisciplinary programs, you need, you know, tenured senior faculty bought in because academic incentives actually turn you away from that work hmm. because the journals that count towards tenure and other things are all myopically single discipline. <laughs> all the academic committees that tend to vote on tenure are myopically single discipline. And so literally all the incentives at major universities are typically working against this. So you need that senior leadership buy-in to break through the red tape and to really create new incentives to make this stuff work. Um, and so that means this can't be number 83 on the list of the university's yeah. priorities. It needs to be like, you know, and, and the way you tell that is, do they have some money from the provost or from the dean or from whatever to sort of get to launch this to then bring in more money to sustain it? And if they don't have any money, odds are it's not as high a priority. Some universities are more cash-strapped, so they'll have the entrepreneurial spirit. And so you focus on that where it's like they have a dynamic professor or leader mm -hmm. and they're really bought in. Um, you know, and then, then you know, we sort of look at, you know, is their approach new or different or is it just copying, literally copying and pasting what another university is doing? Because 
we're at the stage where we want different universities with different kinds of programs with different mixes of disciplines to see what the market demands. And so, so we want that diversity of approach. And so we look for that. And then we look at sort of, you know, other things like what part of the country is the university based in? You know, does it bring that geographic diversity? Where are the students coming from? Is it a community that's underrepresented and that, you know, it's great to have a program that really pulls it up? There are, there are sort of other factors there to think about how do you have a diverse and inclusive group of grantees to build a coherent and diverse field? So not everything is like, but is, is more, you know, um, you, you have a range of, of things that, that sort of contributes to, to sort of, you know, that sustainability over time. So um, when you started doing this, if I remember correctly, you were talking about building the field. And universities are sort of the focus for that now, building these university programs to crank people out. I mean, when well, you think about building the field, what does that mean? Sure. So it, for, for us, it means sort of three things. The first is we want think tanks and, and policy-oriented nonprofits that are sort of the anchor civil society institutions. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want 20 think tanks and policy nonprofits, each with one or two people focusing on cyber, because that, you know, as you know, one or two people is not enough. If this is actually a priority, you need a team of people. And so we're trying to build a small number of those organizations that have a team of, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people, just like you would at another big program within a think tank or nonprofit. So, so we think that if you have a couple institutions like that that we help build with sustained larger grants, that'll engender competition too, where then another think tank will look at it and go, oh, okay, I get it. This is actually a real priority. And if we're going to be a serious player, we too need to spend millions of dollars a year on this, not just a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars sustaining one researcher. So that's sort of like one piece that we think we can meaningfully build in the field is that that sort of nonprofit piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, the second piece is, is right, what you just said. It's, it's, the, it's the pipeline of talent. It's the universities predominantly doing education to then feed people into government, into the think tanks, into the private sector who are cross-trained and multidisciplinary. Also doing some research that's hopefully policy impactful, but honestly, we're more focused on think tanks and nonprofits doing that research because the incentives at universities, again, militate against policy-relevant research. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the incentives are aligned to generate research that is, you know, like consciously not policy-relevant and not published in a way or made accessible to folks that can actually then make decisions in government and out of government. There are, of course, exceptions, and we're supporting many of them. But in general, academic research is, is, is you know, not policy relevant in this space. Have you and seen... the third piece... No, go ahead, think, go ahead. Do the third piece. Sorry, the, the, yeah. the, the, the field needs to work on is how do we communicate about this and tell stories? Because we don't even have an agreed upon vernacular or taxonomy or, or even agreed upon definitions of what cybersecurity means. And so there, what we're trying to do is mature just the way that we communicate about this, because we think that's an impediment to the field forming, mm -hmm. given all the disparate communities that need to come together to have a coherent field. So what we're trying to do there is say, we need journalists to do a better job and get smarter on these issues and, and, and learn how to write about them and educate their readership. We need blogs and sort of, you know, accessible outlets to read content that is not jargon-filled and not overly specialized or, or technical. We need tools to tell stories, like images of cybersecurity that aren't just white men in hoodies or Matrix-style ones and zeros <laughs> or locks and swords and shields, but you, you need better images. So that was that, that competition we ran with, with Open IDEO. Yeah. So those are the three parts that we think we can impact to build the field, realizing that overall building the field requires more things and, and many more dollars than we have. But those are the pieces of it that we think 
you know, we can help drive. And so those are the three focal points of our grant making. Well, I, was, I want to come back to the disparate communities point, but I was just going to ask if there's this Notre Dame project on the policy relevance of political science. I don't know if you've seen it, but it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's research that backs up a lot of what you said that, you know, academics are writing to get tenure. They're not writing to affect policy. And so right. they're, it's a completely the different yeah. audience, you know. Um, what are the disparate communities when you look at it? And I think about this because for the first year in more than a decade, I'm not going to go to RSA. It's, I don't know if that's a disparate community, but there sure are a lot of people. But when you say disparate communities, what are you thinking about? Yeah. So, I, you know, like there are many ways to sort of like identify buckets, right, or, uh-huh. or tribes or whatever you want to call them in the cyber community. But, you know, I think I think at a high level, you know, one is sort of, you know, hackers, white hat researchers, mm. independent security researchers who are generally highly technical and many of whom have been working in this information security space for years. Um, not organized, not hierarchical, you know, lots of subgroups, you know, lots of, you know, rivalries, but, but, but a huge reservoir of, of talent and knowledge that both works in the private sector to some extent in the government, but also in academia. And so that is one big group. And so you know, DEF CON is just like a su- really superficial proxy where, you know, you get 30 some odd thousand generally of those folks together. So that's like one big grouping, right? And that's one that's typically not super well connected to policy. There are, of course, exceptions, you know, like Mudge and you sure. know, folks like Jennifer Granick yeah. who are lawyers, but now part of that community or, you know, um, you you name the other the, the other person there, Katie Musaris, there, there are a bunch of them. So that's yeah. one group. I think then you have corporate type CISO security engineers who are really mm-hmm. at the medium to big companies who oftentimes have a background. Some have a background from government, from Fort Meade or otherwise, and they have a lot of resources and, and a corporate hierarchy to work in and are really trying to move big enterprises and big networks um, and thinking about things because they're working at publicly traded companies to some degree. You know, that, that, that CISO up, that whole cadre is another big one. Um, I think you know, the academic researchers, some of whom are technical, some of whom are policy and legal, it's, it's, it's very diverse. But again, oftentimes not doing the policy research, but working on the new technology or doing the new legal analysis, but not connecting the two. Um, so we've got the whole academic community, some of which is applied, a lot of which is not. You know, you then have sort of government where there's huge differences between state, you know, state and local, federal, and then international um, but more and more really seized with these issues and not always plugged into those other communities where the, frankly, larger bodies of knowledge reside. And so government is getting better but still struggling to a large degree because they're not actually in control on a lot of these issues. The private sector mm. owns and operates, you know, a lot yeah. of the network and infrastructure, and that is a bit different. Um, and, and, you know, government isn't always used to dealing with that that sort of playing the supporting role as opposed to being the supported mm-hmm. um, command authority um, with all the national security stuff wrapped into that. Um, and then you have sort of like civil society, which oftentimes is more privacy and civil liberties oriented, trying to look out for the consumer or average internet user, which sometimes they do well. And sometimes I think they put their own values, which are somewhat extremist and think that that is what average consumers and internet users want. And that just isn't the case. And so I think there you also have an interesting community of folks and, hmm. And, you know, all of that together, it's, it's an alphabet soup. It's a lot of different people. A lot of them don't know how to talk each other, talk to each other well. They have one or two friends across the aisle, if you will, in the different communities, but it doesn't really cohere. 
because they're really different communities with really different incentives and really different maturation models, um, maturity models. And so what bits of those communities come together and really stick as a field will be interesting to see. What is, uh, how does being in Silicon Valley shape what you do? How does it shape how you think about this? I mean, it, it's interesting because we're like, we are the one large nonprofit on Sand Hill Road putting aside Stanford University who owns the property, right? And so we sit across the street from all the venture capitalists yeah. um, that, that are making billions of dollars, including for us, right? Like a lot of our endowment is invested there and they generate nice returns that then build our asset base to then give away. So, so I, I don't say that to criticize them, but it definitely puts us in a unique position. And so I think being out here is advantageous in several mm. respects. One is that we're out of the government bubble. And so we're not yeah. always coming at this from the perspective of what should the federal government do or not do or what should it try to control, which is oftentimes the D.C.-centric mentality. And in this space where the technology is rapidly changing and a lot of the innovation and, and wealth creation is happening out here, not in D.C., um, sometimes you need to look at things from the reverse, which is where's the technology and the money flowing? And then what does that mean for the role of government? It's sort of the reverse question. It's the reverse sequencing of questions that, that typically is asked. And so... I think that gives us insight and lets us sort of try to bring more balance to the conversation and who we fund. It also lets us build relationships with a lot of the companies and entrepreneurs and researchers out here to, again, balance out so we're not just listening to various DC perspectives, yeah. but understand what's happening out here. And, and it's not to say, like, I have a super granular understanding of all the new technology and where the money's flowing, mm -hmm. but I have a much better understanding than I would if I sat in DC. And a lot of our friends and a lot of the people who come to events are of that startup, of the tech company mentality, many of whom used to work in government and so can, can bridge. And so it puts us in an interesting position to think mm. about the D.C. Silicon Valley bridge or lack thereof and how it needs to be a two-way street. And so, so I think it is a great vantage point that we have. And just gives us something you know unique to bring to the table. I, I have really mixed feelings about the the meme at this point that Washington needs to connect with connect again with Silicon Valley, and because I I hear that a lot, and I I just at this point it's like you know it's if when something enters a decade as a meme, you begin to if it's not like a funny cat, sure, you know what what do you do you what. You know, I, so I just was seeing some senior military leaders who said, you know, Washington needs to reconnect with Silicon Valley. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean? What does it mean for you? Well, so I don't know if it's, if it's necessarily connect, but I, I think that there's still a fundamental cultural divide, right, where government expects certain things of the private sector for various reasons, and the private sector expects certain things of government. And those traditional models and expectations are misaligned to sort of the digital world, which is moving unusually fast for government to stay on top of. Mm -hmm. um, and it's happening in a space that government doesn't actually control or have authority to regulate or, or legislate. And so I think both private sector is struggling to understand what its role in society should be in this domain, and the government's trying to control something that it's poorly equipped and can't. The genie's out of the bottle, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the cultures of the respective communities only ingrain that. And so... Um, it's not to say, like, I have the answer, but I, I do think that if you want to take a step back and say, we have these new technologies that are spreading throughout society, they can, you go, know, we can try to maximize their benefits and minimize their harms. And if we need to do that, we need to come together to think, like, holistically and collaboratively. That doesn't happen enough. 
because at scale, you still have two broad communities talking past one another because their assumptions and their interests are not aligned. That's really interesting. And yeah. what would be some examples I, of that? I, I yeah. mean it more in yeah. that way. Yeah. So, so like take, take um, Project Maven, right, uh-huh. as a use case in the national security domain, which is one like, you know, I, as a former government employee, am much more sympathetic to the government in that space where personally I think it's slightly absurd for, you know, employees of a Fortune 5 company to say, I should essentially have, a, as an individual, a veto over what a Fortune 5 company does, because my values should dictate what that company does. Like, from my perspective, that fundamentally misrepresents sort of like what the role of an employee is at a company. But I get that's part of the culture that company, some tech companies have cultivated. Um, and so if I'm the government, I, I would be upset that sort of supporting the U.S. in its national security is viewed with derision and potentially as like an evil enterprise when at the end of the day, like the U.S. needs a Department of Defense and military forces to keep the country safe. I understand why people have a lack of confidence in certain leaders at present, but that doesn't mean that the U.S. government is evil, that, that the military is evil, that the Defense Department is evil, and therefore should not you know, be supported in any way by companies who are remunerated for doing so. But but how do we change that right over the long run so that you know service and government is viewed as something that is you know honorable, which it is by a lot of people, not by everybody, and definitely not by everybody out here at tech companies. I believe it it, it definitely generally is, and, and, and so I think like that. There's a fundamental cultural divide there that I I I I don't know if we're really doing enough to bridge it, and it's it's really hard to do that. And so it's not so much about like I mean government needs to do certain things differently, like. The tick up in the encryption debate right now and, and the way it's being framed in Washington, I, I think, is just stupid because, like, the debate had already moved past that at the end of the previous administration. And, and mm-hmm. you know, there are competing values. And to just not acknowledge that and to go back to that only one value, national security matters and the rest don't, is just stupid. Um, we're past that. But so, too, is the, is the viewpoint out here that, like, the only thing that matters is, like, I should have absolute security to my private communications and, like, don't ever think about sort of, you know, tinkering with certain aspects of, of, of complex cryptographic systems is also simplistic thinking. And clearly the answer to all these things is somewhere in the middle. And that debate is emblematic of this cultural divide that unfortunately continues. You, it's hard to even get the two sides in the same room without it quickly degenerating into, it can be. you know, yeah, so it I don't, because be. I know, I certainly know both sides pretty well. I certainly know the law enforcement side, and they're they're just not they're not in the receive mode, you know. So yeah, and it's it, it's sort of you know, and I think that is frankly like many things the 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 fault of the political class, right? Because I, I it's just like in my mind, if Snowden revealed anything, it was that there was a fundamental failure by the executive branch and Congress to actually represent the interests of the citizenry and tailor intelligence collection to what the citizenry was comfortable with in terms of how intrusive it was, how transparent it was. The intelligence community was was doing its job based upon what it had been told to do. So to law enforcement, of course, their mission is to do everything they can to keep citizens safe. But political leaders need to make the decision that, well, we're going to put limitations on that. And you're not going to you know, run as hard as you can towards this wall if it requires backdooring encryption in a way that's scalable and fundamentally undermines the security of certain platforms, applications, or the internet as a whole. 
Like, but that's not for law enforcement to decide how to weigh those values. That's for the political layer. And that political layer is failing to actually work through those trade-offs and actually make hard decisions for society. They're just sort of punting and saying, oh, well, law enforcement needs X to go after the Jack Bauer scenario. And you're like, that's not really an intellectually honest framing of the issue, nor, and it's really just an abdication of their responsibility and authority. This is, I I, I, I don't blame law enforcement. I I blame the leadership for not reining law enforcement in and saying law enforcement is not the only thing that matters. You know, it's just not. Um, This is a little geeky, but since you brought it up, backdoors, the other opposite is end to end. What do you think about some sure. of the midway solutions, you know, like the, where you have a midpoint where there's a ability to recover? And the classic example might be the old Gmail where, you know, it was is well encrypted, uh, except when it got to Google where they could they could get access to your your the content. What do you what, this is, I know this is completely aside. It's not what I was intending to talk about. But what do you think? What what would you see as yeah, a solution? I, so, yeah. no, I, I, Sure. So, so I, I think like the right answer is going to be somewhere in that middle area, and whether it's the ability to recover or the, the thing like I'm more, and again, these are just like personal views. Yeah. The Hewlett Foundation does not take views. We do not lobby. You know. Yeah, so yeah. On and so we forth. have the same model. My lawyers yeah. happy, and because yeah. compliance actually matters, yeah. um, we're a 501c3. So, so my personal view on that is, you know, like I'm much more comfortable with with sort of technical solutions to like the device in hand, like, you know, San mm-hmm. Bernardino, right? Yeah. You know, if you look at Stefan Savage's papers and even some of, you know, Ray Ozzy stuff, I know people like invoke the clipper chip and, oh my God, key escrow and it's fundamentally <laughs> flawed and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yeah, complicated systems are complicated. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but like, you know, like I, I'm pretty convinced by Stefan's work that like, you know, there's a way to do it that is not super expensive would only lead to, you know, device specific compromise. Should somebody compromise that system, not like all iPhone tens, but just the iPhone 10 that the FBI has in hand. And like, if that's actually the problem that law enforcement's facing, that they can't decrypt devices at crime scenes to get the content to help them solve a crime, that is like more manageable than sort of, you know, the device and, you know, the, the data in motion, real-time intercept stuff that is really harder for me to understand how you come up with options that are, don't lead to the potential for scaled compromise, which basically goes to, we don't trust the people who are entrusted with the keys or to serve a lawful judicial process. Like, my view is, like, if a court in the United States gives you a subpoena and it's a legitimate, you know, or there's an order like, you have to follow the law, even if you don't like it. Like, that's, that's the way rule of law in a democracy works. I think the real challenge here is, first, law enforcement hasn't actually articulated the scope and scale of the challenge they face. Mm-hmm. Like, the data they, they've provided is just not rigorous. It's not, you know, actually empirically sound. And so it's really hard to get one's arms around, like, what is the scope of the problem? There are enough people that I trust and respect that have told me there is a real challenge here. And so my answer to that is, okay, we'll put a number on it. Like, if it's really serious, you guys can spend a little bit of time and money collecting data to show me that this is a serious challenge to law enforcement. Once you do that, then we can unpack what is the actual challenge. Is it that you cannot listen in real time to encrypted voice calls? Or is it that you have a ton of Apple iPhones or Samsung whatevers that you can't decrypt? Mm -hmm. Those are totally different solutions and use cases. And so... Like, until law enforcement does that, um, 
it, it, it is hard to then jump to like, what are the balanced solutions? And so we've been trying to think about ways like, how do you actually gather that data to empirically measure the challenge, which then helps you identify what solutions are most relevant. Thanks for listening to Cyber From The Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber From The Start.